The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Lord, we are gathered here in this room in your presence in a different way. We are always in your presence, but we are gathered here as a congregation in worship to sing together and now to worship over the word together. And in a different way, we look forward to you among us now. We look forward to that, but we are dependent on you. And and I am so keenly aware of the fact that we must have a gracious touch from you or we are powerless. My words are just English words spoken by a human mouth. The words we read on the page are just black ink on white wood product. Unless... Father, you would commission your spirit now to move among us and give life to the spoken word, to give life to the written word, inspired by you, and now we pray illumined by you, shown. We ask you, shine on it. Be present here and overcome all of our need and all of our weakness and all of our sin. Lord, if there is sin standing between us and you right now, convict us in the particular places where we sit and cause us to confess it and turn away from it. We don't want there to be any barrier now. If there are cares or concerns that are pressing in on us, graciously, Spirit of God, set those aside. Do so so that you would shine on your word here and illumine for us a beautiful and marvelous Jesus and the assurance that he gives to us as people. Spirit, that's my prayer for this morning, that you would assure your people of your nearness, of Christ's victory, of his vindication of us, and of the sure home that you are taking us to. Convince us of that, Lord. When I look at my life, I look at my life and I... I imagine that many can identify with this. And so often I am colored by fear. We are often influenced by fear. Sometimes consciously, other times unconsciously. I pray, Lord, that you would this morning empower us just a little bit more to face that fear and put it in its right place beneath a sovereign and gracious God who cares and has saved and will save. Help us, Lord, to sort this through. Speak in your text, I pray. Have your way in us for for our good. Would you speak blessing to your people this morning, God? I ask you to do that. Make the text clear. Make Jesus clear. Call us to him for his glory and for our good, I pray it. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the middle of 
Revelation chapter 3 and the letter there to the church in the city of Philadelphia. Not Philadelphia, PA, but Philadelphia in what is now modern Turkey from way back. It's a a small town and a small church. And this letter, we're going to look at it this morning. We've been looking at all these letters now to find out what it is that God says to the church so as to teach all of us what a, what a church is that's a pleasing church to Him. And listen to that because we want to know. We, we want to be a church that's pleasing to God. And we have seen amidst much rebuke and much correction and much encouragement and, and much strengthening, we, we've seen over all of it the sovereignty of God. God who reigns over all of the church and is in charge of every single thing that happens. And that's meant to be great encouragement to us as people. Though last week... Such authority and power might have been a little unsettling. Because last week what we saw in the letter to the church in Sardis was Christ confronting the church there because it was a church of hollow reputation. A church that looked good on the outside, looked like it was spiritually alive, like it had a lot going on, but on the inside was empty and dead. And Christ sees that and he confronted it and threatened to come against the church if that didn't change. That's a sober warning. It's going to come, Christ himself and all the sovereign power are going to come against the church if he didn't address this, this two-faced, this hollowness. It's a sober warning, but mixed with promise of hope as, as it always is. And be sure we, we can't miss the warning, but we also can't miss the hope because Christ also held out in front of them a promise that they would share in the victory parade at the end if they held to him in integrity. That, that message of hope was there too. And the message of hope is what's emphasized in the letter this morning to Philadelphia. In fact, it's all hope and encouragement. There's, there's no rebuke in this letter. One of the two, five of them have both encouragement and, and rebuke, and two of them only have encouragement. The smallest churches and the weakest churches, in fact. The church in Philadelphia was small, and it faced a bunch of opposition, particularly from the Jewish population in town, just like in Smyrna. There's actually a phrase in this letter that's almost identical to a phrase in that letter. The Jewish population in town was vehemently against the church and had surrendered it to the authority of Rome. It, it kicked the church out, of, out from underneath of the umbrella that Judaism provided, and so it exposed it to the wrath of Rome. And the church was hard-pressed there. And Christ speaks to that church a heavy dose of encouragement. There are so many promises, so many points of of encouragement and hope in this letter. So as we read it and listen to it, I think we'll find this main point. Here's the point I'm going to try to communicate this morning. Jesus assures his faithful ones of permanent standing in the kingdom of God. Jesus assures his faithful ones, of permanent standing in the kingdom. That's the point I'm going to work towards this morning. Let me read the passage, Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. 
I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation 3. I'm going to unpack this in, in three different observations. And the first one is that Christ opens the kingdom to the faithful not to the powerful. Christ opens the kingdom, opens the kingdom of God to the faithful and not to the powerful. That's the issue. Faithfulness to Christ. Not not influence, not power, not standing. Faithfulness is the issue. Whether you're weak or strong, He opens the kingdom to the faithful. Starting in verse 7, we see the usual opening pattern in these letters, as has been the, the pattern. Christ takes something from the imagery of chapter 1 when he introduced himself there. He takes something from there and then applies it in the letter to the church that relates to some issue that they're facing. And here he picks up the idea of keys, being a key holder. And he puts that among a couple of other images. He says, first, I'm the Holy One, which is an expression used in the Old and New Testaments to refer to the Messiah. Perhaps you can think of Acts 2's quotation of Psalm 16, you will not let your holy one see decay, the resurrection of Messiah being referenced there. Or Mark 1.24 where the demons say to Jesus, we know who you are, you are the holy one of God. It's, it's shorthand for Messiah. Jesus says, I am the Messiah, I'm the holy one, and I'm the true one. I'm the genuine one. I, I am the, the genuine Messiah, and what I say is true, trustworthy. Those are going to be issues, as we'll, as we'll see in this letter to this church. But the biggest one is the main description of being the key holder, a reference here to Isaiah 22.22. 22. And there in Isaiah, where it says, I have the key of David, and I am the one who opens and shuts... When those, that's a quote from that chapter, from that verse. And there, in the context, it's talking about a steward in the household of David, in, in the kingdom. A steward who has a literal key that can unlock a door and therefore is the one in charge of, can you go through this door or not? I'm the one who decides. I have the key. I'm the one who determines whether or not you can get into the, the palace and have access to the king. Literal there. And with this imagery, what Jesus is communicating is, I'm the Messiah, the true one, and I control the door to the kingdom of David, the kingdom of God. I'm in charge. I decide. That's how he sets it up. 
And then verse 8 moves to the letter proper. He says, I know your works. I know who you are. In other words, I know what, what's in your heart. I know how you walk. I know what you're about. I know what you do. I know you. And I have set before you an open door that no one can shut. Not a reference to evangelism or an open door of ministry. The Bible does use that language sometimes. But, but here the introduction makes clear. He means, I have opened for you the door of the kingdom. I'm the one in charge of the key. I have unlocked it and opened up for you the kingdom and no one can shut it. Which is important for them because, as the verse continues, this church is particularly weak and insignificant. It has little power. In itself, it's not very much and it's facing a very hostile crowd. The Jewish population there was was strongly set against them. And Christ assures them that he has opened the door to the kingdom for these ones who are weak. But not just because they are weak, but because they are faithful. He says there, in that verse, I know that you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And he'll say later, in beginning of verse 10, a similar thing. I know that you have, and careful here, if you have the NAS... You get a little bit better interpretation. The NAS correctly uses the, the my Christ's and sticks it on to, applies it to patient endurance. You have kept the word of my patient endurance. The NAS translates that very well. Up to this point, we've, we've seen that patient endurance is all over these letters, and we're the ones called the patient endurance to to patiently bear with Christ all the way to the end? Well, here, it's a message about Christ's patient endurance. They've kept the word. They've kept my name. They have kept the word about my patient endurance. These folks are faithful to the message about what God has done to save people. The gospel. This word, this word about the patient endurance of Christ is marvelous. It's the hope that we as a people have, that we have in our hands and must hold on to and, and not deny, not let go of, not turn away from, but hold on to tightly. In the midst of all of, of our weakness, in the midst of all of our despair, which if you get in touch with your weakness, and I do not mean here, in, the, in this case, I do not mean our physical weakness. I mean, if you consider our biggest problem, our standing before God and our utter inability, our weakness in that sense, the despair that sin causes for us, if you consider that and get in touch with that, this is tremendous hope. To a weak people, God in strength has stepped in and done something amazing. He sent a Christ who patiently endured all the way to the end to death. 
this is a word about a Messiah that the world looks on and says, you're out of your mind. A Messiah like this? Yeah, a Messiah that patiently endured all the way to death, who came to earth and took on a body and did not count death something to be avoided, but something to be embraced. Why? For you, weak people that you are. This is a Messiah, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, who comes to earth for the sake of going to the cross. This word, in a context like that, talking to Jewish people, is folly and offense. But they held to it. And there is glory in this. Men and women, this message is how God has opened to you the kingdom. Do not let this become something something sterile, mathematical almost. Yeah, there's, there's a certain formula here about wrath and about a payment on a cross to satisfy the wrath, and therefore out the end comes the equation of completed. Oh. There is something precious and marvelous here for you. Christ holds the key in His hand. Not literally, figuratively. He holds the key in His hand and has unlocked a door to marvelous eternal blessing for you who are faithful to this message, who hear it, the message of the cross of Christ crucified for sin and raised, who hear that and hold to it and say, this is my life. This is my strength. I don't seek strength in life and significance in something else. This, in this word, I hold to it. This name, it's my treasure and my joy. The kingdom open to you. The kingdom full of immense, eternal riches opened to you who believe that message. In the midst of all of your weakness, weakness to save yourself, but also the weakness of every other event in life. A marvelous, a marvelous, beautiful thing here. Christ, to his glory, Christ has opened the kingdom to you. And it, it all starts here. There's more to be said in this passage, but we have to, to understand this and go at least this far and ask, is the door opened for you? Do you have access to the kingdom? I, I don't know. I don't know everybody here. I don't know where you're coming from. But I, I believe in groups of this size, there are often people who stand there and can look at the door that is still closed. In other words, you've heard the message but have not placed faith in it yet. Is that you? Eternity turns on it. Eternity turns on it. When you hear the message, 
A message about Christ's patient endurance who came to earth and all the way through remained faithful to God, kept His law perfectly, and died under wrath anyway. Why? Do you know why? He died under wrath to take your wrath. He lived obedient to the law to give to you that obedience so that God the Father can look at you and say, clean, forgiven. You hear that, do you understand it, and have you trusted it? You have to understand it, but you have to trust it. Place personal faith in that cross, or it's just a fact of history not applied to you yet. Jesus opens the kingdom to the faithful. To those who hear this message, grab it, believe it, and don't walk away from it. Is that you? I invite you, come to him, believe and be saved. And for most of us here, I know most of you, I know where most of you are in this. It just starts there. There is much more that follows, which is going to take us to the second point. When I talk about the second point, if you're one yet who has not embraced this, I'm talking about what could be for you, but what isn't yet. I want to be clear on that. Christ opens the kingdom to the faithful. And the second point, Christ will vindicate his faithful ones, even though they are weak. Christ will vindicate his weak but faithful ones. To vindicate someone... Big word. To vindicate someone means you have a person here who in some way is in question or in doubt, under accusation, on the outside, accused, abused, put down, set aside. And to vindicate that person is to take him or her and change it. To show them to actually not be in the wrong, but to be in the right. To not be accused, but to be forgiven. In some way, it, it changes or it reverses. It shows their approval, not their condemnation. And that's coming to the people of God. He's going to reverse their fortunes or turn the tables for them. I might put this point in this way, if I was to be a little looser with it. One day, eventually, Christ will put the shoe on the other foot. Could say it like that. He will vindicate his faithful ones. Sometimes it happens in this life. Right now as we live, the Bible's, the Bible's full of that. A great example in the Bible would be in the book of Esther. If you think of Mordecai and, and evil Haman, the government official who was trying to persecute and, and accuse and cast down and even built a gallows on which he was going to hang, as in kill, hang Mordecai. And what happens? God intervenes and Mordecai is vindicated and Haman is hanged on the very gallows he built for Mordecai. Vindication. Sometimes it happens in this life. God can do that. However, the Bible would encourage us, and certainly the book of Revelation encourages us, to think about the vindication that comes at the end. 
We are called to be faithful all the way to the end and look for Christ's vindication then. And verses 9 and 10 both tell us something about how he vindicates his faithful ones at the end. Verse 9, the church faces opposition everywhere. In Philadelphia, it was particularly coming from the ethnically Jewish population. We talked about this before when we looked at the letter to to Smyrna. Jesus says, I'm going to fix it. And as we look at verse 9, let me make a comment here. Look at verse 9. There's some profound truth in this verse that should affect how we think about some other theological issues that are not quite front and center, central for us this morning here. So I'm just going to try to touch on some of that other stuff, but I'm going to try to do that in a way that doesn't take us off of our focus of vindication. The point here that we're looking at is that Jesus is going to vindicate his people. It's a people that's not ethnically defined, but defined by faithfulness to Christ. So I'm going to touch on some other stuff, but try to not go too far into that. So follow me now through verse 9. He says, Behold, I will make... He says this twice, in slightly different ways, but the same basic effect. Look at this, he says, I'm going to give it so that, I'm going to make it so that these enemies of God and servants of Satan, that's hard language to hear, it's true, enemies of God and servants of Satan, Ethnically Jewish people who do not believe are just like ethnically Gentile people who do not believe. Both servants of Satan. Alike. Saw that back in the letter to Smyrna. Same phrasing back there. It's what Jesus taught in John 8 when he was dialoguing with Jewish people. The question that determines if you are a true child of Abraham is... What do you do with this Messiah? These folks, like the folks in John 8, are rejecting him and oppressing his people just like their father Satan, the father of lies. It's hard, but it's true. Jesus is saying to the church, These ones, they hurt you now, but I will come and I will make them come and bow down at your feet. Not bow down at Christ's feet in worship. Bow down at the feet of the Christians in subjection. They threw you out of the the synagogue. They threw you into the Roman bus. They oppress you. They attack you. But in the words of Isaiah 60, verse 14, that whole chapter is about the vindication of the people of God. And here he references verse 14. The sons of all those who oppress you, I will make them come and bow down at your feet. And I will make them to learn, referring to Isaiah 43, that I love you. Who does God love? The Christians. Whatever their racial background, whether they be circumcised or not, Christians, the ones he loves, Hard-pressed, cast down, rejected. But one day they will stand tall with all of the people of the earth who are against them bowed down at their feet. That is clearly a shoe on the other foot. Vindication. 
Now, as I said, that, that affects some other things about some theology about how some of us should think about Israel and the church. There's a lot more to say about that whole subject. And for the record, I do believe that there is a coming time when many ethnic Jews will be gathered into the church, but they'll be gathered into the church. There's, there's more to be said about all that. I'm going to have to leave some of those things hanging. But the point here is that over and over and over and over, the Old Testament says that when Messiah comes, He will bring vindication for His downcast people. And here He is saying to the church, to you, that's you. You who are weak, and downcast, and oppressed, and set aside, and ridiculed, and sneered at, and laughed at. I'm going to put the shoe on the other foot one day. For you. I will lift you up. Christian, that's talking about you. All those promises in the Old Testament are talking about you. And the same reality is described in the events of verse 10. Clearly a second example of the vindication of the people of God. Christians have been faithful to the message of the gospel. In other words, he says that you've kept that, so therefore I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on all the earth. He's talking about the the great tribulation that's described in much of the rest of the book of Revelation. And he's saying there's going to come a time where God's wrath is going to be poured out onto the earth on all those who reject Him. And when that time comes, I'm going to keep my faithful ones from that wrath. Now, some Christians say that the keeping them from is going to be He's going to take them out of the world completely. And other Christians say that, no, that Christians are going to be present but kept in the middle of it. Like how God kept... The Israelites in Egypt kept them safe while he poured out wrath in the plagues. They were in Egypt, but kept from it. Or how he kept Noah safe in the middle of the flood, pouring out wrath on the earth. So some say he's going to keep by taking them away. Some say he's going to keep in the middle of. And grammatically, it could go either way. And again, I don't want to go too far into this, but as an aside, if you're interested, I, I think it's the latter. And I'd point you at Revelation chapter 9, verse 4, where... The wrath of God is poured out on the earth and there are some sealed and set aside and marked who are protected from that wrath, which means that they're present. But if you disagree with me on that, don't, don't miss the point. Exactly how Christians are kept from that terrible time is not the point. The fact that they are kept is the point. The verse says... I will keep you from it. You will not experience that wrath. You right now experience much trouble. You are hard-pressed. You are cast down, not quite destroyed, but, but perplexed and crushed. You are at the bottom. And there's going to come a time where I am going to finally decide in justice now, I'm going to pour out wrath on all the earth and not on you. I'm going to show I'm going to vindicate. I'm going to display my approval of you. Christ will vindicate his weak but faithful ones. 
which at this point we, we have to kind of gather this together and bring it back to us here because the necessity of talking about some of these things kind of takes us off on some thinking about some stuff and takes us off into some theology and you trace out some references to the Old Testament. It's really easy to, to lose sight of why does this matter for us? So let's kind of bring it back. Christ spoke this to the church to encourage us in the midst of our weakness right now under the assumption that we are on the bottom now, but we will one day be on the top. So be encouraged by that. It's encouragement to us in our weakness. And so when we get in touch with our weakness, what do we do when we find, when we realize our weakness? As a church, when we, we realize we are weak, we are tempted to scramble for stuff that makes for strength, to scramble for numbers, to scramble for money. But let me speak personally here about us as individuals. Think about your own weakness. Think through your life. And as you look at yourself, where do you see your weakness, your inability, your vulnerability? Maybe it's physical. Look at your own body. Some of us are very much in touch with failing bodies. Some are in the prime of life and and you think you're invincible, but others of us realize that's not the case. You realize your body's fading away, you're weak. Maybe you see more of your emotional weakness and you realize you fall apart a lot. You're just not a strong person. Maybe you look at weakness and you say, economically, I'm weak. I don't, I don't have much. Politically, I'm weak. Some of us here are just think about the South Sudan and, and you fear because you know people there, family members there, in a politically vulnerable situation, physically threatened, politically weak. Maybe you look at your gifts and abilities and you see lack. Your, your spiritual gifts are not upfront gifts and they're not very well developed and pronounced. And frankly, half the time you wonder if you're worth anything. Intellectually, you're just not that sharp. You have a hard time, maybe some of us have a hard time even communicating in this culture because English is not your first language, not even your second language. That creates a, a great sense of vulnerability and weakness. You don't even know what's going on half the time, and there is great threat in that. Maybe you're awkward around people and you sense, I don't have people skills, and so I'm always kind of on the outside. People are engaging in something that's probably about me or to my disadvantage, and I don't really know what it is. How are you weak? You are weak. How are you weak? Maybe your family has, frankly, abandoned you, spouse or parents. 
And you feel like, I've I got to go through this world all by myself. I was not made to do this. I don't think I can do this. And frankly, the blow that that person deciding he or she would rather be somewhere else with somebody else other than me, that, that kind of takes a whole bunch of the air out of the bag and leaves me deflated, vulnerable. How are you weak? And watch what happens as soon as you discover it. All those things might be a collection of hurts and pains and vulnerabilities. And when you see something, you realize that if I had that, I would be stronger, I would be more secure, more stable. If you have money and if you have friends and if you have a sharp intellect and a strong body, etc., etc., you're king of the world. But as soon as you realize, I don't have, I'm missing this, your life begins to look a little bit, you know that game Jenga? You know the game Jenga where you have these rectangular wooden blocks that stack three on top of another and make a little wooden tower? And as those pieces get pulled out one by one, the tower becomes weak and it begins to twist and totter and eventually it falls down. You look at your life and as soon as you see the weakness, the pieces that are missing, you realize my life is unstable. And watch what happens. You immediately begin to grab for something to strengthen it. If I only had more of, let me get it. Brothers and sisters, we begin to scramble to shore up those walls, but at, at best what we, what we can garner in our hands is wet sand. Wet sand has some substance to it until it dries out. And there's no strength in it. Everything that, everything that we gather, everything that we can, we can collect here on earth to set up, strengthen, fortify our little wooden tower, the, the very beams in it itself, all of that stuff is failing and weakness. None of it holds you up. All of it will blow away. It is a beautiful and wonderful and marvelous thing to realize how little you have and how little you are. Because if you realize that, I am a weak one and everything I can put my hands on is itself weak and perishing and passing away. If you realize that, maybe in the grace of God it will send you chasing after and looking for strength that is found in one place. And the awesome thing, Christian, the awesome thing is that He has promised you He is that strength for you and will surely vindicate you in your weakness. You don't have to find strength yourself. Which is good because you can't. You don't have to find strength yourself. He is your strength and He promises you, yes, your life is weak and tottering and one day it will fall down you will go to the grave. And I promise you, I will pick it all back up and rebuild it. And I will cast down forever everything that right now 
looks like all that. He will vindicate you, Christian. If you would think about this, if this would become central to you, how you process life. I prayed at the beginning that I'm, I said about myself, as I prayed at the beginning, that I often find myself fearing. And I think you do too. I don't know every one of you. I don't know how you process all of life. But I think you do too. Do you realize that if you were to take that fear and put it up right next to this, what you would find is, I'm fearing the loss of the wooden block. I'm fearing the drying out of the sand. Well, of course. Sure. But I have a surety. I have a security. I have a strength. I have the one who has the key and has opened the door for me. And no one can shut it. He's omnipotent. He's rescued me. And it's promised to vindicate me. You. Promised to vindicate you. You, his faithful one, even, even though you're weak. It's the antidote to fear. It's, it's the deliverance of joy to your life and hope and rest. That's good news. Christian, that's good news for you. Christ will vindicate his weak, faithful ones. Which should lead us to the third point. A call, a, a call, but it's, it's also a, a message of hope, I think. He vindicates his faithful ones. So naturally then, here's the third point. Remain faithful and he will carry you home. Remain faithful and he will carry you home. Verse 11 says, I am coming soon. What he says in 9 and 10 is not far off as God counts near and far. I'm coming, don't doubt it, so hold fast so that no one seizes the crown from you. A victory crown like in a, an athletic competition, a crown of victory. So keep on keeping the gospel central so no one takes the crown from you. Press on in faith, and if you conquer, you will receive. Well, that's the beginning of verse 12, by the way. That raises a question for us. And I want, I want to ask the question just because I think some of us, I, I was surprised, a little conversation that I had recently, I was surprised that something that I assumed to be obvious someone else did not realize. And so I want to clarify something. When all of these letters are exhorting us to press on, to remain faithful, to, to strive, to, to conquer, they are, are not, this is the part that, that seemed obvious to me, if he's opened the door and no one can shut it, you are secure in your salvation. Don't forget that when it comes to the part about hold fast, remain faithful. There is not here a statement about remain faithful or you'll lose your salvation. 
these statements in all of these letters are serving a very particular purpose. Let me explain it like this. The call to remain faithful, to remain faithful to His name, to His gospel, what that's doing is showing us, it's explaining to us who are believers, this is the path that leads to glory. Run it. And and a Christian, one who has been saved and made new in the heart, says, oh, now informed, I see, and embraces it. Maybe an illustration. If, If I were to say to you, If you drink the water in the toilet, it will make you sick. I'm not actually assuming that you're tempted to do that. What I'm trying to do is cause you to steer far and wide away from toilet water. Here's how that affects me. I know that if I drink the water from the toilet, I will get sick. Not because I'm going to drink the water, but there are times when, when guests are coming over, I wipe off the toilet. When the toilet gets a little stopped up, I plunge it, and water sometimes splashes around. I sometimes have to put the seat down or pick the seat up. Sometimes a little floaty in the back gets stuck, and so I take the top off the tank, and even the tank water, I go in there and fix the little floaty, and I wash my hands rapidly after that. Why? Even the tank water. Water in the toilet makes you sick. So I wash. I'm not about to drink that stuff, but I don't want any any splash on me. I don't want any little hint. He says to you, keep holding on to this so that no one steals the crown. I don't want anybody to steal my crown. Therefore, I'm going to hold on tight to it. Exactly. Exactly. Hold on tight to it. That's exactly why I told you that, so that you would hold on tight to it. Conquer, and you will receive glory in in the next two verses. Conquer. Oh, so I need to fight against sin and make it my enemy. And Yeah, exactly. And you, a Christian with with a new heart that wants that more than anything, says, oh, there's the path. And the other path leads me to sickness and to death. I'm going to avoid that like the plague that it is. And I'm going to run this one all the way to the door that's wide open for me at the end of this path. Exactly. That's why I told you. I warned you against that one so that you'd run this one. He is not saying, careful that you don't lose your salvation. But he is telling you, Christian, this path is trouble. Avoid it. And as you hear that, you say, oh, exactly, that's why I told you. And for further help in remaining faithful, look at the city. There are verses 11, I mean 12 and 13 are just full of repeated promises. There is something marvelous. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, never to go out of it again. What's the image there? The temple is where God lives. 
And you'll be not just a visitor into it, a pillar. He's going to make you a great, big, massive, steady, permanent fixture in the presence of God. A pillar in the temple of my God. A little phrase repeated four times in these verses. It's the temple of my God. He's going to write on you the name of my God. The name of the city of my God that comes down from my God. There's layered beauty in this. Christian, can you see the city? Can you see this? Not, obviously, not if it's literal. You're not actually going to literally be a pillar. But he's picking up all kinds of imagery about temple, where God is. The Old Testament repeatedly talked about God writing His name on His people. He's going to own you. He's going to write on you name of Father and Son both. He's going to give you a place to live that is a place of immense beauty. Read the last couple of chapters of Revelation. The new Jerusalem. The city with foundations whose architect and builder is God is coming to you. Your place of dwelling forever and ever and ever. How do you get there? Remain faithful. I want that. Chase it. God is preparing a place for you, His people. He has opened up access to that and it's never going to be shut. He's going to clarify one day as He vindicates you that you are in fact His. And He will bring you into the place where He Himself is the greatest treasure. My God, my God, my God, my God. What a fortunate people you are. You're weak now, yeah. What a fortunate, fortunate people you are. Do you live with your mind there? The sad reality is that most of us don't. I know. But I plead with you, would you, would you, for your own good, live with your mind there? Would you see the vindication that is yours as more real than all the troubles and weaknesses and afflictions that are yours? It would be a marvelous thing, would it not? It would be a marvelous thing to live as a citizen of that city with an ownership written across your forehead so clearly that everyone saw it and that you saw it, it would be a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing to know a sure standing in the presence of God forever, never to be lost. It's there for you. It's there for you, Christian. So often... We miss the great big forest for the trees and we get lost in, in little, almost little phrases and little commandments and little minutiae of life and little moments to live in and you miss the big. 
You have a life and you have a destiny that is far more than anything that you're anything that you experience right now. I wish I could just kind of stick this into you. I have very weak words. I can't make it so. So I pray that the Spirit of God would make it so that you would live somewhere else even while you walk around here. As you experience all the weakness of your life this week, and you will because you're weak, embrace it in joy. Don't try to to cover it and scramble to find strength here. Embrace the weakness in joy and set your heart on another strength. One that's coming. One that will be beautiful forever. There is a place of security. There is a place of beauty. There is a place of abundance. There is a place of healing and rest. There is a place where the creation is redeemed. There is a place where the garden is restored. And heaven and earth are joined together as one under the good and right reign of God for the healing of all of the nations. The place of my God. And Christ has opened it to you, Christian, and will surely carry you home to it. And you will know an existence that can only be qualified with the word awesome. Do you see it? Do you see it? Christ has determined to give it to you. And no one can shut that door. He's the only one with the key. So worship Him and trust Him and rest in Him and rejoice. Let me pray. Father, my weak words fail to describe what I should have done a better job with. But probably what I can't do a better job with because I don't understand it myself well enough. So I pray for me and I pray for my brothers and sisters here. Would you create in us thirst and create in us a taste and an understanding of what it's like to dwell in your presence forever in a sure city. Give us some taste of that. And I pray, Lord, this week, as we face our weakness, would you catch us in the moment? Would you catch us in the moment of compensating? And teach us to let go of the compensating worldliness and to lean fully into a vindicating Jesus. Catch us in the moment, Lord, and teach us that. And I pray when you do that, put a smile on our face.
to see the strength in the midst of the weakness. To put, to put it all in you and to, to worship you for it. Give us, give us grace in that moment sometime this week for my brothers and sisters here, I pray. You assure us, your faithful ones, of a permanent standing in the kingdom. And bless your name for that. It's all by your doing and not by ours. Thank you, Lord. We love you. We trust you. And pray for grace to love and trust you more. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.